Thank you very much. Uh, it's so good to have fun as we sing praises to the Lord together. Perhaps it's just a way of introduction. Just thought we would look at why we study the Bible just very briefly as by way of introduction. And uh, there are six reasons given from scriptures as to why we take time to look in God's word. Um, the first is that it brings us to faith. Have you noticed that when you're fearful, discouraged, and lacking in trust with God, things are not going well, and you say, why, why? And then suddenly God reminds you, when was the last time you read my book? When was the last time you opened my message of love? Now, some of you may know I'm a bit of a sentimentalist, and and uh, every once in a while I'll find a stack of old letters, and I'll grab an old letter and I'll reread an old letter. It might be from Becky, it might be from my parents, it might be from a brother or sister or whatever. And as you read it, you go, wow, this is so cool, I, I'd forgotten all this. And it just warms your heart to the individual that has written. The same is true with the Lord. When we... When we read God's word, it brings us into faith. We suddenly realize that the God who parted the seas is the same God who stands by you and I. The same one who said, peace be still to the men. Well, he didn't say to the men in the boat so much as he said it to the storm around them. It's the same one who can calm you in your extreme difficulty in the storms of life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by God's word, but also brings hope. The scripture is clear. This, this group here have hope, but the world around you has very little hope. Oh yes, there's hope in their retirement, their RSPs and their pension funds and maybe in uh, some equities or whatever. But you get the distinct impression that that's a fragile hope. Those of you who've been watching the pictures from Northern California and have seen photographs of whole towns such as Paradise. My heart goes out to those folks when we see everything. Just a pile of dust. But the Word of God brings us hope. And these things were written that we, through the Scriptures, might have hope. Thirdly, it brings light. You know, there's nothing more frustrating. I, I, I have a pet peeve, I must say. I come into the house and there's no lights on in the house. And I go, what? Why didn't we just leave one light on here so we could see our way in at least? And uh, I don't know, maybe it's a guy thing. Who knows? But, you know, sometimes others want to save pennies while I'm stumbling around in the dark. And... Uh, the Word of God, though, brings light. The entrance of your Word brings light. Fourthly, it brings conversion. Those who have worked for years in the Kid Creek or the, uh, I'm not sure what name it goes by now, um, Glen, Glencore? Is that the one? Um, you know, they know what it is to take raw materials from the earth and transform them into copper, into, into other processes. Um, the Word of God is designed to convert us. It brings conversion to the heart, cleansing to your ways. Psalms 119, verse 9. It also brings 
holiness, true holiness. You see, in and of ourselves, we are unholy. We don't think like God wants us to think. That's why he told the believers in Rome, in Romans 12, that they were to to give themselves over as a living sacrifice to God, uh, that they might know what it is to have that renewed mind. And we filter so much through our medias and through our various sources of information. But God wants us to filter our lives through his word. Much difference. So sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. John seventeen seventeen. And then because it's commanded. The word of God is commands us to study his word. Not because it's meant as a legalistic precept like, do this and thou shalt. No but as a loving father would say to his son or daughter. He says, read my word because it's important for you. It's important if you want to be my servant to rightly divide God's word. So these are just six. There's more. There's way more. Word of God is like a mine. You get to the bottom and they realize they're digging another shaft right next door and it's going down still deeper. And that's what the Word of God is like. You never get to the bottom of it. And so, why do we study parables? We're doing a study on parables. And I love what Jim was saying earlier and I'll just briefly review. It's a disclosure to the repentant. Matthew thirteen eleven. He speaks to the disciples. He says, to those others outside it's been hidden. But to you it's been given to know. Now in today's age, knowing anything is like, um, not politically correct. We are supposed to walk through our day if we're to be politically correct and say we know nothing. We have no idea of what's going on in this world. And if you say, I know, like Paul did, I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. You and I are not on the side of political correctness. Now, we are called to live kindly and to live tactfully and live gently and to live lovingly with our neighbors and those around us. We are never called to live dishonestly. I must repeat this. We, of all people, are called to be bearers of the truth and of the light. And sometimes... I'm moving ahead of myself, but sometimes we shade the light in our efforts to be politically correct. Disclosure to the repentant. Explanation of the results. He says in this same chapter, Isaiah 6 and 9, that these people are not receiving the word of God because it was foretold that they would not. And he quotes the very verse. And you can go back and see, there it is in Isaiah 6. There it is. And so there's a third reason. There's a blessing to see these parables and understand them. And we certainly have been blessed both with Phil's message and with Jim's message. And I hope with every message it will become a blessing for you. And it will prompt you and I to get into God's word and say, what does this mean? And finally, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. And it might seem a bit repetitious, but the Matthew actually quotes another location, Psalms 82, verse 2. When he says that these things were written, that Jesus spoke to them in parables, and that this itself fulfilled prophecy. In other words, the very act of speaking in parables was in fact a fulfillment of one of the 300 or so prophecies that Jesus fulfilled when he came on this earth. And if you read Psalm 78, it's powerful. 
Because when someone alludes to one verse in the psalm, they're saying, like, take a little peek, take a little look at the whole psalm in context. But what is their system of interpretation? This is something, and I'm, I'm not trying to tread into what Phil's been doing or others have been doing because I wanted to aid in what they have been doing. But it's a literal. It asserts the biblical text is to be interpreted according to the plain meaning conveyed by grammatical construction, historical context. It's a literal system of interpretation. It's grammatical. Uh, I never thought when I left grade 8, after learning rules of grammar, that I'd be still talking about them now. Honestly. Honestly, grammar is very, very important. And if you don't understand it, if you don't get it, you, you, you're, you're missing your comments here and your periods and your exclamation marks. But there's more to it than that. And that's, and that's very important because when you read the Word of God, it's full of context. It's full of important truths. But you don't get them if you stop in the wrong place. The Kabbalah system of Jewish Gnosticism, I'm not going to go a long time into that, just to suffice to say that it was one of the systems of interpretation for several hundred years and is still in existence. And there are still people who take that sort of system and apply it to the Bible. How so? I call, just a little picture to remind us of what their, their books were and how they looked at them. They had quite an interesting perspective on it, all faults. I call it the mystical system of Bible interpretation. It goes something like this. Pick and choose what you want to believe, when you want to believe it, if it suits you. Here's the story. A rather overweight individual was extremely distressed about their weight. So much so that they felt God really had no place in their life. He was not loving towards them. They would look at their scales every morning and say, I'm up again. I can't seem to beat this battle of the bulge. I mean, they did it in the World War II. Why can't I do it now? They came across this verse. It stared them in the face. And they suddenly said, Oh, all the fat is the Lord's. God loves me. He loves me incredibly. What they forgot was that in context, it was talking about the priest burning fat upon the altar. They didn't take it that way. So this mystical system of interpretation basically is the pick and choose. You flip the Bible open in the morning, kind of like a magic eight ball. What does it say to me? Woo! Wow! Judas went out and hanged himself. Now, I don't want to go to the rest of that analogy. Just suffice to say, that's not the way Christians read or understand God's Word. It's a contextual system. We understand what is the Word of God. Is it a pattern? Is it a principle? Is it history? Is it prose? Is it a perpetual command? Is it a particular command? These are questions we need to ask when we look at God's Word. The passage in front of us, Matthew 14, verse 5, 14 to 18, is this. You are the light of the world, the city that is located high on a mountain, it's not able to be kept invisible at night. Nor do they ignite a lamp, place it under a bushel basket, but instead place it upon a lampstand where it shines upon all who are in the house. Let your light in this way shine in front of all men, 
that they may see your projects of goodness and bring glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do you suppose I came to abolish the law and the prophets? I did not come to demolish, but to satisfy the law. For amen, I give the word to you. Until heaven and earth disappear, not one iota, it's a small Greek letter, not one kareri, small Hebrew vowel, it will no means perish from the law until all has come to pass. This is the passage that we are looking at today, the parable of the city set on a hill, which cannot be hid. This is a photograph of, I believe, Seattle. I've never been to Seattle, so I have to take the commentators who presented this as a bona fide picture of Seattle. This is Seattle at night. Not very well hidden. The illustration is clear. You are a city on a hill. You are a light. Wow. A light. That's pretty powerful. You cannot be hidden. It reminds us of a number of things. It reminds us that a lamp needs to be ignited by an external flame. I was going to bring a lamp up here and put it on fire, and I thought, yeah, might not be a good situation. I've been known to knock things over. and We don't want to go there. So we'll just suffice to say that this is a picture of a, an actual kerosene lamp that we own. And this kerosene lamp is, is quite an interesting thing because you, it can sit there for days not doing anything. But it sure is nice when there's no power. As long as you have a match. Have you ever had that experience? You've got candles, you've got a kerosene lamp, you've got everything, but you have no way to ignite it? I've been there. I know what it's like. I'm scampering around saying, where did the matches go this time? Where did the lighters go? Oh, I got a lighter and then you click, 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 barbecue lighters to... Do they make them so that they only work for like 30 minutes or something? Because you can put them away and 30 minutes later they won't work. You need an external source of ignition for a lamp to work. The lesson is true. You can't light your own lamp. We need the light of God to come into our hearts, to ignite us, to bring us into flame, to spark us into life. You need an external flame. The wick is not a light. That's interesting because the wick is a part that actually burns, but it doesn't burn. Ever notice that about a lamp? You're looking at that flame and you're going, hey, that's so cool. You know, and I get mesmerized when I look at flames and I could sit there for hours and, you know, whether it's a fireplace or whether it's a wood stove or whether it's a lamp and just, oh man, that's so hypnotic. I just can't sit there and watch it. But the wick doesn't move. It doesn't go down. Why is that? Because it's not burning. It's conducting, like a straw, the oil in the lamp so that the oil might burn. And the wick needs to be kept low. You ever notice what happens when you bring the lamp wick up and it's really smoky? Yeah, it really puts out the smoke. In order to produce a good flame, it has to be kept low. Well, Jesus is the light of the world. John 8, 12. And it's a reminder that you and I, as a group, because a group of lights makes a city of lights. And so you and I are to be constantly availing ourselves of the Holy Spirit, who is the oil. And we are to be living, abiding, John 15, abiding in Jesus, so that the the works we are doing are not self-works, are not prominent works, but rather they're works of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the light of the world. And we must come to Jesus 
if we've never come to Jesus to be born again. And so it's not enough to say I was born in a Christian family, I live in a Christian country, I have Christian parents. No. That is insufficient before God. He says, what have you done with my son? Have you truly been born again? I did a little experiment with my lamp to see what it would be like. And sure enough, the wick, when it was put high, seems to give more more brightness. But soon the smoke from the combustion covers the glass and it is pretty dirty. So too much self means too much smoke. And in my life, too much of us flowing forward is not enough of Jesus. John the Baptist had it right. He must increase, I must decrease. Too much sin in our life creates much. If we're not walking in holiness, if we say one thing but do another, it creates smoke in our lives. And people look at us and they say, I can't see the light. All I see is the smudges. And then, of course, this is something I learned the hard way. One day, a couple of years ago, I was experiencing a power outage, which we all do occasionally. And I went to my trusty kerosene lamp who was sitting on the wall. I said, it's time to light you, little guy. We've got, we've got a use for you now. And I cranked up the wick and I put the ignition to it. Nothing happens. I'm going, huh? Unscrew it, take a look into it. It was empty. Now, I know we do not have kerosene thieves running around with little straws sucking kerosene out of the the pot. And I'm trying to figure out, why did that go missing? Here's the connection. The wick had been left up about, uh, about a thumbnail high. Just in preparation. You don't want to be ever too, you know, you want to be ready for those moments. But in the process, that wick had been pulling the oil, and evaporating the kerosene invisibly for months. By the time I had gotten to it, it was totally empty. Boy, that gives new meaning to the story of the parable of the ten who were waiting for the Lord to come. And five of them, it says, when the Lord came, their lights had gone out, and they had nothing left. No oil. The others... I found an interesting truth to this. Started going around and shutting down the wicks until it was almost completely below the top of the kerosene lamp. Just yesterday, two days ago, I went in and checked. They had not been added kerosene for over two years and they were perfectly full still. All of them. Not one matter of oil had evaporated. Even though there was no plastic or cap on them, simply had been pulled down out of sight. It's a reminder, we need to keep staying out of sight if we are to allow God to call on us even in those emergency moments. A bruised reed, he shall not break, and a smoking flax, he shall not quench. This is quoted by Matthew in reference to Isaiah 42. And guess what? It applies to you and me. When we're smoking too much, and I'm not talking about vaping, and I'm not talking about cigarette smoke here. I'm talking about Christians who let too much of their cells show, and too much of pride gets in the way, and too much of, of who they are, even if they're gifted. And that, I'm talking to myself here as well. When we let ourselves be too much in the limelight, with the wrong heart, we start to smoke. 
And the good news is he still loves us and he doesn't quench you out. He sent, does some things to change us. The second paragraph, the second story, um, well, there's a few verses here about the light of the world again, and uh, we're just going to move ahead on that. The house built on the rock, second parable. Whosoever hears my word and practices them, I will compare him to the wise man who laid his foundation upon a bedrock. Matthew 7, 24 to 29. And the torrential rains poured down, the floods arose, the wind blew and beat upon that house. It did not collapse. It was founded and was secured upon bedrock. But all who hear my word and do not practice them will be compared to a moron, literally a stupid man, who constructs his house upon the sand. The torrential rains poured down, the floods rose, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it collapses, and great was its destruction. It came to pass when Jesus had completed his word. The crowds were astonished at his teachings because he taught them as an authoritative king and not anything like the scribes' words. Interesting in this parable, the second parable, the foundation for our lives is Jesus Christ. No other foundation can be laid but such is laid, and that is Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 3.11. But it's not only that. Both the wise and the foolish built houses in this story. Both built in floodplains. For a long time, I thought the whole point of this, this parable was, don't build in the floodplains, for crying out loud. If you look, you see, every time there's a flood, it's the houses in the floodplain areas that are, that are damaged. That's not the point of the story. Because both houses were built in floodplains. You see, sometimes living in a danger zone is exactly what God calls us to do. And a floodplain is indeed a danger zone. But what else was it? Both experienced devastating storms. Both experienced the kind of situations that nobody wants to experience. And both, only the wise who built on the rock foundations, the foolish built on shifting sands. Some of you may have been following the Mexico Beach, um, Florida situation. A hurricane by the name of Michael, came through there last month. Um, as it came through that area, there was one gentleman who had a house that stood. A picture is worth a thousand words. And all around was destruction, but that house stood. And they went, you can go, by the way, if you're interested in checking this out on, on YouTube, it's still there. You can do and watch the full interview. Very fascinating interview. I wish we could show it, but we just don't have time. But this is what the gentleman said. How do you make a house that stands a hurricane like that? You pay much to the detail. You, you go above code. The code called for 140 mile an hour winds to be able to sustain that. They went for 240 mile an hour winds sustainable. The code calls to build on piers when you're right beside the beach like that. They know about storm surges, but he put 40-foot piers in. Um, the code calls for certain types of construction. He did it with rebar and concrete. The cost was great. And I guess that reminds us that the Lord Jesus went above code for us. He went all the way. And... He says, it's interesting when you read Matthew 5 and 6, and he talks about, it was said unto you 
thou shalt not. And he quotes the Old Testament. But I say unto you, and he goes above what they were interpreting. Why? Because God was speaking at that moment. He's saying, you missed the whole point. You can forgive your brother seven times. You can even forgive him for 490 times. But you've missed the whole point. You don't have forgiveness. And if you don't have forgiveness in your heart, you don't have my, my life, my heart. He that it would have ears to hear, let them hear. And so, as we conclude, a reminder, perhaps we are out of God's family today. I would be remiss if I did not say that there could be one or two here amongst us who think for many years that they've been a part of God's family, but they have missed the point and have never truly been born again. Do you know how you know when you're born again? I can speak from experience because I had six non-born-again experiences. And here's the key. You know that you know. (laughs) You don't have any doubt in your heart. There's no question in your mind that you are in Christ and he has redeemed you. And if you have a doubt this morning, I'm going to suggest that you maybe need to settle that doubt by getting with the Lord alone, whether it be here or whether it be in your own house, and simply saying to him, I'm sort of doubting that this was real because I'm not really hearing you in my life. I'm not really enjoying you in my life. Now, there is such a thing as Christians living apart from God and not and turning turning aside for a time being. But what a miserable experience that is, man! If that if you want to be miserable, just become a backslidden Christian. There's nothing so discouraging. But if you know the Lord, you know Him. Not religion, not church, not ritual. You know Him. It's about Him. The Lord is my God. My strength in whom I trust. My buckler. Did you notice that possessive pronoun? My. <laughs> is that the right word? I'm not sure if I use the possessive pronoun my. Is that, is that a possessive pronoun or is that a adjective of some sort? I don't know. Not good enough. But it's possessive. It means it's part of you. You're declaring it. He is the horn of my salvation. My high tower. I would encourage each one of us to go, not go away from this time today truly knowing that he is your light, your salvation, in whom you trust. And we'll call up the music team for one last song, if we would, please. And then we'll close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. We thank you for your presence here amongst us as we've shared, as we've sung, as we've fellowshiped together. We pray that you will just continue to bless us as we gather together in the other end, enjoying this uh, potluck, bring and share time of fellowship. We pray that you'll bless all who have to leave. Give us all, Lord, a good day for you, that our lights may so shine among men that they may see you, the good work, and glorify you in heaven. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.